Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday the Governor General read the long-awaited throne speech for the government. We'll discuss the details and get some feedback. Donald Trump refuses to commit to a peaceful transition of power if he loses in November. Global News correspondent Reggie Cicchini joins us from Washington to talk about that. London area businesses are calling for support due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Will they get it? We'll talk about it. And here in Hamilton, fears of a deficit for this year have been avoided, for the time being anyway, due to emergency grants. How much is it going to offset it? We'll throw some numbers at you. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, obviously Ottawa yesterday with uh, the throne speech and the reaction to that. And then, of course, uh, last evening, uh, the Prime Minister and uh, the other uh, major leaders of all the uh, political parties uh, addressed the nation. And uh, we're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. But let's begin with the throne speech. As per usual, uh, it was delivered by the Governor General, uh, Julie Payette. Uh, but that's about the only thing that was usual about this. It was different, obviously, because of COVID-19, a much different circumstance. It took a long way to get going, didn't it? Coverage started at 1.30, and I think it was after 3, before uh, the Governor General actually started to speak. But uh, she set a very somber tone, at least the government did with her comments, uh, as the uh, Governor General promised to help deal with the economic consequences of the pandemic. This is not the time for austerity. Canada entered this crisis in the best fiscal positions of its peers, and the government is using that fiscal firepower on things like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and on the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. So that set the tone. This is not the time for austerity. And they, they're spending a great detail through the course of the speech uh, talking about an extension of some existing uh, assistance programs and uh, some new wrinkles to it as well. We begin our coverage with the government side. Please welcome to the program Philomena Tassi, who is, of course, the Minister of Labor in the Trudeau government and also the MP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, and Dundas. Philomena, thank you so much for the time. I know it's a busy time for you. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the substance of it, and, and I, I'm going to try to put this in the context of what we've heard from some of the opposition parties. We're going to hear from them in just a little bit. Uh, not a time for austerity, yet at the same time you're getting an awful lot of pressure from economists and bank presidents and everybody else that, look, the spending is out of control. I don't know if we can handle this. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you've got the, the news about what looks like the second wave of COVID, which is upon us. So talk to us about those challenges and, and, and how your government came up with, with this proposal. Well, first and foremost, uh, the, the, the issue of, uh, you know, that the, the second wave is upon us, I think, is, is critical. And, you know, the throne speech uh, started with that in terms of the first pillar. And it's really important that we as a government continue to assure Canadians that we're going to provide them with the support in order to keep them healthy and well. And so, you know, the testing is a perfect example. Uh, as you're aware, we've given $19 billion to the provinces and territories as part of the state Safe Start Agreement so that tests can be provided quickly and responsibly and effectively. And so um, I think the message is, is loud and clear here that, folks, we're not through this, like and now more than ever, because as numbers are rising, it's really important that we follow the protocols and, uh, you know, uh, do all the things that, would, that are suggested wear masks, uh, cough into our arms, wash our hands as often as possible, uh, keep the social physical distancing practices in place because we absolutely don't want to get into a position where we're in, the, uh, where we're in another spike. Um, and then the second part, of course, Bill, is providing the supports. And I think that it's, it's important to recognize that these supports are needed by Canadians. And if if we don't respond, if we don't provide the supports, at the end of the day, it's going to cost more. We can't have inaction here. We have to have action. And the example I think about is the CERB uh, support. So you know that we've offered the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit to almost 9 million Canadians. If that benefit were not offered, you would have Canadians who have lost their homes, not able to pay their mortgages, and, and the situation would be dire. It was that much needed support that have put Canadians in a place that they can still be in their homes. And that as we move forward, as uh, was articulated in the throne speech, and work to provide Canadians with jobs, those Canadians now will be able to uptake those jobs. 
Well, let's talk about that because we were promised, and of course it's speculative until the Governor General actually starts speaking, uh, that there was going to be this uh, huge economic recovery plan uh, to get us out of that. Uh, have you tempered that now because of the, the, the return of the virus? Well, the virus never left, but phase two of this virus? I think that the way I would respond to that is to say that we've put it in context of the situation that we're in, and that is that the pandemic is here and that our first uh, priority is keeping Canadians safe and providing them security as we move through this pandemic. But as you know, included in the throne speech were many initiatives that we've spoken about as a government to say, look, folks, here's the path forward. It's a strong path. We believe in Canadians. We know that when we make these investments, it's going to benefit all Canadians. So, you know, things like investing in skills training, something that is that is so important. Um, you know, uh, creating jobs by retrofitting homes, um, electric vehicles and making them more affordable. We know with the great news about uh, Oakville and the plants there that is going to be uh, producing these vehicles. So it's, you know, ensuring that these jobs are being created so that Canadians have the ability to go to those jobs and making those investments because those are investments in Canadians. There's a, a, a lot of pushback here and a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, about this, as you know, uh, uh, Felina. Uh, but the, the, a common theme among the premiers last evening, after they digested a, a, an awful lot of the throne speech, was, and I'll, I'll try to paraphrase this, they, I think they all acknowledge, yeah, we're in a, a health crisis here. I mean, and they all acknowledge the fact that it looks like the second wave is upon us and the numbers are frightening in just about every part of this country. But they're saying in light of that, there should have been more money directed towards the, the health care and towards the provinces, money for health care. I know that was a discussion that went on before the, the, the throne speech came on, but they're looking for more money to help to deal with the, the health care aspect of this. And uh, just about every one of the premiers, the consensus seems to be, we, we don't have enough. We, we, we have to have that, that, that money. We have to have that discussion. So in response to that, Bill, I would say, look, of course premiers are going to advocate for more funding. They want the best for their province and their territory to ensure that, um, you know, their stakeholders are taken care of. And so, but I, but I want to point to look at the support that the federal government has already given. $19 billion in a safe start agreement was given to the provinces and territories. That's historic. And that was, a part of that was to ensure that they had the health uh, supports that they needed, that they could do the testing. Um, and, uh, uh, and you know, and now the federal government is investing in ensuring that that when a vaccine is created, the the research, of course, for the vaccine, but then in addition to that, ensuring that there's going to be doses that are available for uh, for all Canadians across the country. In addition, two billion dollars to have you know a safe restart for schools, uh, three billion dollars for wage top ups, so that those low paid frontline workers that we are so grateful for that have made significant sacrifices have top-ups because we know that you know in some instances the compensation well let's be honest they're not being compensated fairly for the role and the jobs that they are doing uh you know the two billion dollars in ppe we have continuously supported our provincial and territorial partners and we want to continue to work as a team i think minister leblanc gave the figure that it was 97 cents per dollar uh, that w- that the supports that have been rolled out across the country and three cents by the prov- provinces and territories, that's been the contribution. And I'm not complaining about it, but I'm saying that we as a federal government have been there for Canadians because we recognize the importance this support uh, is needed at this uh, at this very challenging time. Well, more to come on this, obviously. The debate starts uh, later this afternoon, and um, lots more discussion to be had on this, too. Philomena, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Philomena Tassi, of course, Minister of Labor and uh, MP for uh, Hamilton West, Ancaster, and Dundas. Uh, the Conservative Party was quick to respond after the throne speech, and, uh, and of course, uh, their leader, uh, Aaron O'Toole, did respond by video uh, last evening after the Prime Minister's address. We'll get into that in a couple of seconds. Joining us, though, to give us uh, some feedback about uh, the throne speech itself is uh, David Sweet. David, of course, is the Member of Parliament for Flamborough-Glanbrook. Uh, David, welcome back to the program. Good to talk with you once again. Bill, good to talk with you. It's been a while. It has been a while. Well, this is certainly a worthy conversation here and a worthy topic to, to get back into it with you, David. Let's first of all get your impressions of what you heard in the throne speech. Well, I've, I've done enough of these interviews over the years, and I know you're going to ask me at some point what's positive about it. So 
let me let me start off. With start that. there. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that they're going to continue the emergency wage subsidy into next year. Um, it's there's still a lot of gaps in it, but uh, for those people that are exercising it, uh, it's it's maintaining jobs, and uh, so I'm I'm glad that they made that commitment, and uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we see that in the budget. So. Th- the, the other side of that coin, as he's talking about with Philomena Tassi, is, uh, you know, the, 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 the promise that the Prime Minister made through the throne speech, of course, is that we're going to do whatever it takes. Uh, do we extrapolate from that whatever it costs, too? Is that a concern well, to you? Yeah, okay. So so that's the, that's the other edge of the sword, is that the, the wage subsidy so far has cost us $35 billion. And one of the huge gaps yesterday... Uh, that I saw in the throne speech is there's absolutely no plan to manage the debt. So we're, our deficit is ballooning at $400 billion. Our debt is now over a trillion. Uh, and just think about, you know, for your listeners, because those are big numbers and they're hard to get your head around. Uh, you know, the average house price in Hamilton is 400000 So if you had a conventional mortgage of 350000 let's say, uh, and you had a good interest rate these days of 2.5%, your, your payment per month would be about $1,800. If it went up 1% to 3.5, it would be $2,000. You know, a fully, you know, 10%, 11% more. Uh, and right now, the debt charge that we're dealing with, if it, if it went up 11% from $40 billion, we chew away so much uh, revenue when we do that. And, as, and the prime minister did not, uh, I should say, the governor general in the throne speech didn't even mention about how they're going to manage the debt. Is that supposed to be or should that be a priority now or should the welfare of Canadians be a priority, as, as was characterized through the throne speech? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think, look, you were mentioning uh, earlier on uh, the, your interview about the premier's asking for more money for health care because yeah. the health care budget has been drained. Uh, look, look, if you don't if you don't manage your expenditures, you're not able to if you don't manage the goose that lays the golden eggs, so to speak, you, you, you can't possibly have eggs tomorrow. So I, look, at I, I think you need to make sure that you're spending money responsibly. And we've seen this government, you know, over and over in situations like with the, the we charity, et cetera. You've got to spend money responsibly, and you've got to make sure that you're, you, you have a plan as you do that, and you're, and you're dealing with priorities to get back on track later so that you can deal with future priorities as well. I mean, look, this pandemic is the thing that's staring us in the face right now, and we need to be as aggressive as possible dealing with it. And at the same time, there's going to be issues in the future, and uh, we need to be prepared for those as well. If the government survives the, the confidence vote, and, and that's up in the air right now, based on some of the comments we heard last night, David, uh, are you willing to work with them to try to, 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 to massage some of these things that they're talking about doing? I mean, it is a minority government, and, and let's face it, they're going to need support on just about every one of these pieces of legislation in some way, shape, or form. Bill, I look at I've been around a while. I'm, I'm prepared to work with it. anybody who's prepared to, to be reasonable and work, work with us. Uh, but, you've, you know, you can't shut down Parliament for, you know, weeks and weeks and, and then bring a throne speech that isn't representative of, of anything that uh, any of the opposition parties asked you to do. I mean, one of, the, one of the key things that our leader asked the prime minister to deal with in a throne speech was to talk about Western alienation and to recognize that there's a unity issue in Canada. It wasn't even mentioned. Um, you know, for, for the writing of Flamborough Glambrook, for example, uh, in, in a pandemic where, you, where we're ordering people to, to stay home or at least asking them to stay home as much as possible and work from home, uh, rural broadband wasn't... I, I mean, it's a, it's a big, big issue in Flamborough-Glanbrook and throughout all of the greater city of Hamilton. I'm glad and you rural- brought that up because I've heard from a lot of people that said that should have been in there. I know there was a discussion about it uh, and the commitment, and I'm paraphrasing that, is they're going to ramp up the program. Well, they're woefully behind already. Uh, I don't know that there's any new money in there. No, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad situation that uh, is, has no remedy right now in this throne speech. Uh, our, our farmers, you know, it impacts them. I mean, our farmers are already dealing with, uh, and, and they weren't mentioned to any substantial degree either. They're dealing with trade issues with China. They're dealing with temporary workers. They're dealing with a new carbon tax. Uh, and uh, really no substantive relief at all for them mentioned uh, in the throne speech. And, and look, if... Uh, you know, the safety and security of our food 
chain is 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 paramount if you know if you're talking about priorities so um, I, I think those those things needed to be in there um, and and there's 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 many of like rapid testing should have absolutely been in there uh, the premier of Ontario says that you know he's been hounding uh, Health Canada to try and get an answer to rapid testing and he says all we get is crickets yeah, I know the Premier mentioned that yesterday afternoon uh, just before the throne speech and talked about that and, and about some of the technologies that are used in other directions. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that discussion goes. Uh, David, you guys are at it again, I guess, starting this afternoon. Uh, now, the, uh, just on a procedural point, if you could, since you've, you're a veteran of, of all of these wars, uh, my understanding is that the government has to allow five to six days for debate on that. Is, is that going to happen this time? Uh, you know what? It's uh, <laughs> you're asking me to try to. This, this is not business as usual. I know that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, look. I you know I would I would hope that uh, particularly with what we've gone through with some of the ethics situ- situations that the liberals have got themselves into and the, and the prorogation that um, they would allow this debate to go as long as it needs to go. So uh, we'll we'll wait and see. Like I said, it's, it's going to be you know their decision, but. Uh, yeah, we'll wait and see exactly how the government moves. Look, we had to come out publicly uh, the day before yesterday and um, and reveal, which we we didn't want to, because host leaders try to keep their conversations as best as possible to their chest because it, it's a it, it's a significant part of our operations in Parliament. But you know they were planning to come back without any committees. Uh, and and how do you even how do you operate with with without committees? You know, examining legislation. There's no, it, was, it makes the uh, the House of Commons useless. So we had to come out publicly and uh, say that that was their plan. And finally, they they surrendered, and uh, they're going to start some of the committees. By uh, my understanding, is by October, uh, the first week of October, and then the rest of them will be uh, in place by October nineteenth. So um, stay tuned. Uh, well, all of a sudden, the parliamentary channel is must see TV. We'll be watching, David. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Good talking with you. Thanks, Bill. David Sweet, of course, Member of Parliament for uh, Flamborough Glanbrook. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump is making comments right now to signal to his supporters that uh, even if he loses, does not get as many votes, or even if he loses the Electoral College, uh, he may still be in White House. Uh, he's talking now about using the Supreme Court to decide who's going to be the president after November the 3rd, and a number of other things that are just beyond the pale, really. I want to bring Reggie Cicchini into the conversation. Reggie is the Washington producer and correspondent, of course, with Global News uh, in the Beltway. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Good morning. There's a lot to unpack here. Let's let's start with some of the comments that, uh, that uh, the president has been making over the last little while. The concern we all had about the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, was uh, because it was going to tip the court, obviously, to the conservative side, the small-c conservative side. Uh, and the concern was that the, the Supreme Court is going to hear the Affordable Care Act a week after the election, and it's in peril as a, as a result of that. That's one line of thinking. But, Reggie, what the president is saying this day is, is that, look at I may use the Supreme Court to decide who's going to be the president after this, because I'm going to challenge this right up to the Supreme Court, uh, which makes him his appointment uh, that much more perilous. In other words, if somebody gets appointed in a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court, are they going to feel beholden to Donald Trump? Well, I mean, look, this is a very different Supreme Court uh, in 2020 than it was 20 years ago when the Supreme Court was used for the first and only time uh, in deciding an election with Bush v. Gore. The difference is in 20, uh, in 2000, rather, the justices didn't like that they were put into that position of having to decide uh, an election that is supposed to be decided upon by the people and the electoral college. And they said after that decision that they never wanted 2000 to be used as any kind of legal precedent ever again going forward. Yet here you are with a very different Supreme Court, a much more partisan Supreme Court than we had 20 years ago. And the president uh, kind of treating it uh, as not just a separate part uh, of kind of the, the three branches of government, but also as uh, an interior part that he can kind of use for his own political gain. And that really is what has sparked fear amongst Democrats, amongst critics of the president, and even amongst some in the Republican Party, even if they aren't coming forward and saying it publicly. 
because of this, the common theme that he's been touting ever since uh, this whole thing started, and that's, of course, that the election was rigged. Of course, he said that four years ago, too, but he won it, so he dropped that whole idea pretty quickly. As it turned out, it was rigged, but it was by the Russians, not, not by who he thought it was going to be rigged by. But it's there, and, and you're absolutely right, notwithstanding evidence to the contrary, uh, there's a, a, a significant section of, of Republican supporters, especially, that buy into everything he says. Look, there is, uh, and they are fearful of standing up to the president because, uh, as we've seen now for, for four years, and even kind of in the run-up to 2016, President Trump uh, can act like and be seen as a kingmaker. And if you fall out of line, you could potentially fall out of political life. The president has an ability to kind of whip up support that stands behind him and that ultimately stands behind those that are lower on the ballot. So people are, are fearful of breaking ranks. This is why we see somebody like Mitt Romney, uh, who, who says that he will back the president's uh, motion to put a, a vote forward on the floor to get somebody to replace Justice Ginsburg, while at the same time saying that he disagrees with the president's uh, kind of rhetoric saying that he won't you know, go through a peaceful transition, that he thinks that the election is rigged, that he thinks that mail-in ballots are, tip, are essentially a way uh, to get the president. You have breaks in ranks, but they're convenient and they're opportune for when that conservative feels that they're going to be safe in what they say. But when you get into the realm of legality, uh, does that rhetoric carry or does law carry and because uh, that's the gray area that i think a lot of people are concerned about right now reggie uh can he just demand uh that that uh, i want a judicial review into the election i mean it wouldn't be that difficult since the attorney general seems to be you know in cahoots with trump, just about everything trump does uh is you know is do they have all the cards in a situation like that well, I mean, look, far be it for me, uh, who's not a, a constitutional scholar, to say, you know, that he has the legal ability to do this. We know that there is a precedent that the Supreme Court doesn't want to use that says, yes, in the case of, of something that's contested possibly in one state like it was in Florida 20 years ago, that they could be asked to pick up the pieces uh, and decide the vote here. But again, this is a very different election. It's not just Florida Supreme Court that could be kind of caught up in, uh, in, in a kerfuffle over an election count. It's a state like Arizona. It's a state like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Georgia. The list goes on where there is such a close race right now, or at least an increase in numbers for Biden, that the president may simply say, look, I don't trust what the numbers are coming out of here. That is just one play. Election law in this country is difficult, uh, to say the least. Uh, and there are other options the president could go down. He could go to state legislatures that are Republican that lean towards him and ask them to kind of get in the way of what the popular vote is and have them appoint electors and electoral college members that are favorable to the president and have them simply manipulate the vote. There are a number of options the president can use here, which is why there is such a, a, a fear uh, that he is, is kind of eroding democracy uh, in the free uh, election system that the United States has. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the, uh, the the Bush Gore thing from 20 years ago because it's different, but in some ways it's the same uh, because it was about disputed uh, ballots uh, that should or should not be counted. Uh, and the electoral college does come into play here because we just assume that uh, the electoral college uh, members will go and vote according to the the vote in that particular state. But apparently they're not bound to. They always do. Uh, you know, I don't think there's ever been an exception where they said no, but they do have that option. If they say, no, 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 I think this person should be the president instead, they can cast their ballot that way. So there, there are some options here. I, I, you know, we'd hate to think that that could happen, but it's, it's apparently it's within the law if that were to happen. Yeah, it is within the law, and it's within the realm of possibility, because unlike in Canada, where you have, you know, the, the, the kind of election commission that, that oversees how things uh, are done with elections Canada, Elections in the United States are at the state level, and, and then they're broken down even further to going down to the county level. So there really is no federal oversight on how things happen. So if a state decides to make its legislature or tell its legislature to pick electors that are going to be friendly to the president and not follow along with that popular vote, it is something that is simply allowed via the Constitution. Uh, and it really does throw into question here, you know, when the president complains about a rigged election, do we end up in a situation where it is a rigged election because the president has used his power to pull the Republicans in line with him and take the, the kind of wide cast and wide speaking vote and, uh, and, and, and language from Americans and put it behind uh, one party. There are a lot of questions as to, to how this election is going to be carried out. But when you talk about, you know, him talking about, or, or 
in 2000, uh, it was about ballots. It still is about ballots right now because the president is just hellbent on making sure mail-in ballots that could favor Democrats are thrown out before they're counted. Uh, and it goes without saying, of course, that the president himself votes by mail. But uh, but apparently that, that that one should count, but the other one shouldn't. But that's, uh, again, just part of the Trump hypocrisy, I guess, that, that we've come to see on a pretty regular basis these days. Uh, I, another rather troubling scenario is that, uh, as you say, he's had this fight with mail-in ballots. Uh, the, he, meaning the, the Trump team, have lost a couple of state court battles over the last couple of weeks, Reggie, about, uh, about whether or not those uh, mail-in ballots should be allowed, and actually whether or not they can be counted after November the 3rd. Now, some judges have already ruled and said, yes, as long as they're postmarked by November the 3rd, they should be counted. Uh, I got a sense that he's going to challenge that as well, and he apparently the Attorney General uh, is making noises now as if he could seize those ballots until there's an investigation, which means they wouldn't be counted. So uh, it can get pretty ugly here in the next little while. It can, uh, especially considering one of the states that's allowing ballots to be cast after the election day is Pennsylvania, which is a state that uh, is hotly contested right now and could become the Florida of 2020 in being that deciding factor with a, a statistically close race right now between the president and between Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, ballots are already a problem in, in Pennsylvania because we have what's called a naked ballot where if you're sending a ballot by mail, it has to go inside a specific envelope, which goes inside another envelope. And it's not if it's not within one of them, it can be thrown out. So there's kind of a new get out the vote campaign to ensure that everybody is casting their ballot properly here. But it feeds into that kind of message of uh, the baseless claims, really, that the president is saying that mail and ballots are all fraud. And you said it earlier. Donald Trump does vote by mail. He says absentee ballots are OK. But in 10 states or at least nine, including D.C., uh, Anybody can get a ballot. They're just sent out in the mail. And that's where the president sees problems here. Even though there is no problem, there is no widespread fraud. The president is just fearful of a loss. And he really is setting the stage here for what's going to likely end up becoming a contested election. Yeah, of course, in that argument, he doesn't talk about the fact that there has to be validation of that ballot. You just can't fill it out and say, I'm voting for so-and-so and mail it back in. Uh, they're looking for social insurance numbers, a validation of, of self and things like this, uh, which is why, as I think you mentioned in one of your previous uh, discussions with us, Reggie, uh, mail-in balloting has been going on since the Civil War down in the States. Uh, and all of a sudden, this time around, he seems to think that uh, that it's scandalous and it shouldn't be counted. So that debate will rage probably well past November the 3rd, I guess, depending on what's going to happen. A uh, couple of other quick points I could ask you about. And uh, I, I said we weren't specifically going to talk about COVID. Well, now we are uh, because of the, the, the vaccine debate that's going on down there. Uh, you've got uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield and others suggesting it's probably going to be springtime or early summer before there's a vaccine readily available for the public. Uh, the president, of course, is maintaining it's going to be done next month. Uh, and I know he butted heads yesterday with some pro members of the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, who said they will not release the drug until they're sure it's, it's going to be effective and safe. Uh, in an amazing move, the president said, I will determine whether it's effective or safe, not you. So he's, he's basically jumping over the FDA and said, I alone will make that determination. I don't know if he's got the authority to do that. He seems to think he has the authority to do everything. But that really muddies the water here. Well, it does. And I mean, look, this is a president who for four years has said, you know, he knows elections better than anyone. He knows medicine better than anyone. He knows uh, kind of everything and anything better than anyone uh, else. Uh, and he, he put that on display last night. Look, the federal, uh, the Food and Drug uh, Administration has said that they are going to come out with stricter standards on a vaccine to ensure its efficacy and safety is going to be in the best interest of Americans. Uh, and the president is simply saying, look, this emergency uh, authorization use that we're giving to the FDA to ensure that things go quicker, that he's simply going to try and override that to to bring a vaccine up quicker solely so that he can have a, a gift on and by election day to say, look, I said that the, we were rounding the corner and here's that corner. It's now behind us and here's a vaccine for you. Um, that's going to spark uh, problems within the Republican Party, within America, because there already are uh, a lessening number uh, in the United States when it comes to people who say that they're going to get the first round uh, of any kind of vaccine because they are fearful that it's being rushed through too quickly. Uh, the majority of Democrats say no. Even 30 or 40 percent of Republicans say that they're not going to get this kind of vaccine. But for the president to now kind of bigfoot his own administration and the medical experts who are the ones trying to get this out there, it really is showing that there is a strain on what is happening between the White House, the medical association 
and how that's leading to a, a, a kind of a broader confusion around the United States. We've seen a bit of a change in attitude with some of those folks. I mean, Dr. Fauci has always been, I think, pretty steady in, in his assertions about what's going on with COVID and the vaccine. Uh, Dr. Redfield and Dr. Burks, two of the people that were on the task force that were there for those daily briefings in the early part up on the podium, uh, have been accused of being a little wishy-washy on this, but both of them are starting to speak out against the administration right now. I, I don't know if that's a, a sense of frustration or they feel, finally feel that, look, it's, somebody's got to take a stand here. Well, I think it could be a, a mix of both. And I think that there's just an understanding now that, you know, America crossed that 200,000 death threshold just a couple of days ago. And, and kind of key models that are used out of the University of Washington say that figure could be doubled in just three or four months. And I think the kind of um, the, the gravity of the situation is now weighing down the people who are ultimately responsible for the health and safety of Americans. And yesterday we found out that Dr. Burke is kind of uh, on the verge of saying that she's had enough. Uh, of dealing with what the politics inside the White House and the politics that are trying to lay the course for how this vaccine is going to come out. And she potentially could be uh, uh, moving towards the door without being forced and doing it on her own. There is uh, kind of a crisis uh, of conscience inside the medical community that's been associated with this coronavirus task force. And it is noticeable that when the president comes out to speak now, there is nobody from that task force who stands with him we don't know if that's because of their own decision or because the White House is keeping them out, but that is leading to that growing confusion that we keep talking about in the country about what's happening with the virus. That polarization in many people's minds uh, is uh, being caused, as some people suggested, by Dr. Scott Atlas, who was a recent addition to the task force, a Trump appointee, of course, uh, who has some rather bizarre views about COVID and about vaccines. Well, and this is also a person who has absolutely no background and history in infectious diseases. It's a neuroradiologist uh, who has made questionable comments, but is, again, uh, kind of a, a person who's in line with the president. Uh, and we've seen what happens. If you kind of disagree with the president publicly, it leads to a public removal uh, from, from being able to kind of stand with the president and answer questions. Uh, if anyone saw that press conference yesterday with the president, he answered a couple of questions about COVID and then out of the middle of nowhere had to take a quote-unquote emergency phone call and left Scott Atlas there to answer the rest of these questions when he is a person who has had kind of no you know, uh, 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 trip around the block for the last four or five months with the coronavirus task force. So this is just the president doing what he can to latch on to any kind of person who will be able to put his message out there because for, we're 40 days out from an election uh, and the president is, is, is suffering in the polls. So he's doing what he can to make sure that his message gets to his base, not the broader public. Tumultuous times, and uh, as, by the way, we haven't even got into this, but we're just a few days away from the first presidential debate, too, which is going to happen early next week. Uh, as always, Reggie, we look forward to you reporting on Global National about this and really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Global News, down in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about the impact of COVID-19 on small businesses, and, uh, boy, the folks in London are certainly feeling it as well. I want to bring uh, Andrew Graham into the conversation. Andrew, of course, is a reporter at 980 CFPL. Uh, Andrew, I read the piece that you posted uh, yesterday uh, about the, the meeting that a number of small business owners in the downtown core had. And uh, I, I, according to your piece here, I guess the characterization is, is, I mean, they were all suffering, but they seem to be doing a lot better through the summer until you got this latest news about the outbreak. Yeah, and that's really what's driving the lack of consumer confidence, as they're referring to it. Um, again, you have these three outbreaks. Most of them are linked to, you know, activity downtown, and people are associating the two and saying, well, I don't want to go downtown. And even this past weekend, um, local health officials and the restaurants themselves noticed a huge drop in customers coming in, people just being afraid to go downtown because, you know, they don't want to get infected. This is a pretty popular area. I mean, I've been down that area for many times. I mean, especially this time of year, uh, in an ordinary day before COVID, of course, you know, with the university students back in town, it's a pretty hop, a pretty busy area. A lot of the restaurants are doing great business. Uh, why the reticence, though? I mean, as I say, they seem to be doing all right. I know there's been some new cases. Uh, is there a concern that the spread is, is a lot greater than they thought? I think there really is. And I, I think, again, when you have um, down businesses being linked to these outbreaks or being named alongside, you know, news reports of these outbreaks, I think people just associate the two and then almost put a, a, a blanket vision over all the, all the businesses downtown. And, and that's what these businesses are scared about. You know, they don't want to be lumped in all to the same category because they say, you know, all of us were doing our part and the 
overwhelming majority of businesses in London have not had any cases related to their staff, employees, or, or customers. So with that in mind, a number of them got together, and we're talking about a wide variety here. We're talking about restaurants, I know specifically, but uh, this covers the gamut. This is, uh, you know, the opticians, a number of other businesses down there as well. Uh, is is the intent here just to get the word out? Are they looking for help from uh, from uh, local councils? What, what's going on here? It really is that. It's looking for consumer confidence, you know, and, and, and they're kind of harking back to the summer. Uh, as you mentioned, they were doing very well in the summer, and that was when London was seeing, you know, relatively low single-day case increases. So our case numbers weren't that high. Um, and then obviously these past two weeks um, in London, we've seen, you know, people making huge lines at testing centers. We've seen people change their consumer behavior. And they're just saying, you know, local business is still there. We still need your support. I mean, if you're afraid to come downtown, at least order online. They're just looking for some support because, I mean, as they've been telling us, they've been struggling. I mean, it's no... That, that's nothing new to anyone here. Everyone knows the restaurant industry and just local business have been, you know, re- really suffering under the pandemic from an economic standpoint. So they really just want to let it hit home that, you know, they do need the help, they do need support, and they don't want to be forgotten. One of the more troubling stories, I guess, was uh, from Dr. Pepe from uh, Old North Optometry. Uh, and, of course, they're backlogged because they had to shut down for a period of time. So, like a lot of other uh, health-related industries, uh, they're trying to catch up now and bring people back in. Hey, I know you missed your appointment, but... And, and, and she was saying that a lot of people are reticent to go downtown. I don't want the appointment just yet. Let's wait until this goes on. That's got to be awfully frustrating. Exactly. And, you know, I was speaking to her, too, and she says, you know, we're following every single guideline and more. She'll even do extra stuff at her optometry to make sure everyone feels safe. But even then, people are, you know, they still have this this bit of this fear associated with downtown. And, I mean, if you're a consumer and you don't want to get infected, I mean, obviously the advice is to stay home and whatnot. So it's hard to go around that. But at the same time, these businesses, they need the support, especially local businesses. You know, they, they really do rely on that local customer base. I know you talked to a number of the folks that are involved in this and expressing concerns. Now, when they did start to reopen uh, and the protocol was put in place by the provincial government about the sorts of things they had to do, and in some cases, of course, there were barriers that are put plexiglass barriers, certainly masking, uh, social distancing, things of this nature, uh, but also sanitizing, uh, you know, cleaning out door handles and cleaning off tables after service, et cetera, like this. And I know a few of the businesses were saying it's it's really onerous. It's time-consuming, and uh, it's it's awfully frustrating. It's I, they, I think they understand that they have has to be done, but it's really put a lot of pressure on them as small business people. Yeah, what I heard was that, you know, when you pay for the PPE, the plexiglass barriers, things like that, you know, the, the government grants are helping with that. But what's not taken into account is all the labor costs of enforcing those guidelines. That includes having extra staff on hand just to monitor that everyone has their masks on, having extra staff um, put in extra hours doing these tasks that don't really contribute to the business in general. For example, if you're a restaurant and you have an employee who's spending 20 minutes just, you know, wiping down door handles, that's not something you'd usually account for in a a business. So it's just this extra added labor cost that's really taking up not just their money, but also their time from their employees. Well, I've seen that in grocery stores. Uh, you know, there's usually one person right at the front door uh, as you walk into the grocery store to make sure that you're sanitized and maybe, you know, wipe down a cart for you. And, and maybe they can afford that. But in a small business where you might only have six or seven employees, it's, it's got to be very difficult to dedicate one employee to do cleaning all the time as opposed to some of the other work that they should be doing. Exactly. And especially with these restaurants, I mean, the restaurant industry, that's the tough industry. And one person I spoke to, he just opened up a restaurant in northeast London on March 8th. About a week later, he was forced to shut down and then was forced to do takeout only. And to do takeout only for a new restaurant, that's, that's a very scary uh, very scary avenue to take. So, again, you know, these are people who are already in a tough industry, already dealing with all the challenges that come with that industry, and now they have a pandemic on top of it. And from what they tell me, you know, the source of their frustration really comes from having none of this in their control. I mean, they can't control if an outbreak's going to happen. They can't control if, you know... 30-plus Western students are going to get COVID-19. So, I mean, they're really just dealing with things day by day, and they have no real way to plan ahead because if you do plan ahead, you're not really going to get there because things change. We see this pandemic, you know, everything's flexible. You need to adapt. So it's a very tough situation. 
Are they concerned about the future? And I'm talking about the short future here, first of all, uh, because we have seen not just in London, but right across the province, uh, the number of cases have increased significantly to the point where the premier said, look, we may have to start looking at restrictions again, which has got to be the worst possible thing these businesses want to hear right now. It definitely is, and it definitely is a big fear. You know, if if these businesses were forced to shut down again, I really don't think many could take it. And we've seen research that says the same. You know, we've already seen a number, a really big number of businesses across Ontario and across Canada being forced to close because of the pandemic. But at the end of the day, I, I do think there is optimism. You know, they do have a belief in the local community coming out to show that support. And they've said they've been really helped by loyal customers who've really been helping keep them afloat. So I think there is optimism, there is hope, but obviously that's all mixed in with a lot of fear of just not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, or even a month after. Yeah, I know, and I, I just, you know the comments we heard, even from federal and provincial members right now, it's 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 not encouraging. I I know the last thing the premier wants to do is to start shutting businesses down again, uh, but if the numbers go up, and apparently they went up again today uh, over yesterday, which is rather troubling for us, uh, it it only exacerbates, I guess, the problem that these businesses are feeling. I mean, you know, yesterday you had this great story that you filed, and maybe people are going to hear that and listen, and say, hey, okay, maybe we'll give it a shot. And then you hear the number of cases go up again. Well, maybe not. Uh, it's it's kind of like one step forward and two steps back for a lot of these businesses it really is and i think the best way to track this at least in london is just you know check out how things look downtown over the weekend i mean that really has been the best indicator for how business is doing right now last week health officials were noting that uh, on friday saturday um usually very busy days for downtown during the nighttime you know there was almost no one there it's almost a ghost town so clearly people are reacting to these outbreaks. So if we see that again this week, the week after, then that's definitely tough. But, I mean, over the summer, you know, London was very, very popular downtown, very busy downtown, and we had Mm -hmm. people going out to restaurants, restaurants very busy. So I do think London can get back to that situation so long as the local case counts remain relatively low. Um, But we'll have to just wait and see. It's got to be ex- exceptionally frustrating for the, especially the restaurant and bar owners in, in a situation like this, Andrew. Because, I mean, even the last ten days or so, the weather has been unusually warm and nice. It's great patio weather. Uh, if folks would just come downtown and, and partake in that sort of thing, the, they've, they've got to be looking at this as a lost opportunity. That boy, we really could have made up some ground this week. Especially with you know just winter around the corner, because a lot of these businesses are going to yeah. lose their outdoor seating. So as you mentioned, they really do want to take advantage of this warm weather while it's still here. The business owners I was talking to, they've said that you know right now most of their extra money is being put into all these winter supplies they normally wouldn't need to carry. That that includes you know patio heaters, um, outdoor fans, things along those lines to you know provide a comfortable experience in the winter. But, but, I mean, even doing that is kind of a hard task. You don't, you don't know what winter is going to bring, especially in Canada. So. <laughs> especially in London, southwestern Ontario. Come on, I love it down there. But, you know, exactly. when my, my brother was going to university there, said, he said, I said, yeah, spring fell on a Tuesday this year. Uh, yeah, but because you know, you're right in the snow belt there. It's what, it's what happens. But uh, I'm hoping the weather holds out, and I'm hoping that people get the message here and, and start uh, going into some of these local businesses, which they probably used to frequent on a regular basis anyway. Uh, and there's a little paranoia, and I guess it's understandable with a lot of people to say, well, look, it's, you know, the second wave, should I really expose myself? But the element to this, of course, course is we do have a game plan and i'm sure that i know that's one of the things according to the piece that you filed yesterday andrew is that uh, they're reminding them look at if you wear masks and and if you're sanitizing and doing the social distancing thing you're mitigating the impact of this you know it's not as if you're setting yourself into a hornet's nest uh it can work that way as long as everybody's playing by the rules exactly and that's really is the main messenger they want to you know give to londoners that it's still safe to come downtown it's still safe to visit to visit these businesses you know i mean again all these businesses, the ones I spoke to at least, none of them have had a single case related to COVID-19. And, and that's the case for most businesses in London, too. So they, they again, just don't want to be painted under this under the same blanket, don't want to be painted in the same fo- in the same picture here. Because, uh, as I mentioned, you know, these businesses are doing everything they can, and sometimes even more, to protect their customers. Uh, great reporting on this, and here's hoping the message gets out and people uh, start looking at it as an opportunity uh, while they still can and uh, let's try to keep these businesses going and, and hopefully flourishing at some point in the future too. Andrew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Thank you, Bill.
Take care. Andrew Graham, of course, from uh, 980 CFPL News. Uh, good piece online, by the way. You should check out and get some of the reaction from some of those local uh, restaurateurs and, and other businesses in the downtown area that are looking for us to get back in there. And I get it. I understand some of the frustration, some of the concern, and some of the hesitation. Uh, but by the same token, as I say, they've had no cases. Uh, they are doing everything they're supposed to do. They put all the equipment in that they're supposed to do. And if you do what you're supposed to do, i.e. face masking, et cetera, et cetera, and sanitization, uh, go and have a nice time. Have a drink on the patio. Grab a burger, whatever it might be. Even a veggie burger, whatever it might do. Anyway, listen, I also got to talk about something else because the Hamilton City Council met yesterday. Uh, and uh, we had talked with a number of councillors and with Mayor Eisenberger over the last little while about the impact that the virus was having on municipal budgets. And it has been devastating. Uh, however, the federal and provincial governments did come to the rescue to a certain extent. Uh, yet, when they were going to get an update on this yesterday, I know a lot of councillors I talked to were rather apprehensive, figuring, okay, here comes more bad news. But it looks like uh, the deficit they were expecting may not be a deficit after all. Chad Collins, the councillor for Ward 5 in the east end of the city, joins us to talk about this. Chad, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Anytime you get financial uh, updates like this, Chad, I know you're kind of hoping for the best, but expecting the worst than oftentimes. Uh, yesterday was a, a good news story, and you haven't had very many of those lately. No, you're right. And, um, you know, it's been a very challenging year for everyone, not just here in Hamilton, but all around the world. And so we started with very bleak financial picture in the spring. We had a over $61 million forecast deficit for the year, which would have been a record for us. And it we're not, it's not unique to Hamilton. All municipalities across the country are, are facing, um, you know, huge financial losses as it relates to declining revenues and increased expenditures. So the original report was over $61 million, and just in the last couple of weeks, we've received uh, tremendous news as it relates to the assistance that we've received from both the province and the federal government. We, um, you know, oftentimes we, we can be their biggest critics because we're always fighting for our local residents and you know, looking for increased support from the province and the federal government for all issues where there's uh, where the responsibility falls upon all three levels of government to provide a service. And so we, we have criticized them in the past. And I think in this instance, we need to commend them for stepping up to the plate and delivering on their promises. They said they. We lost Chad. I think we might have a bad connection here. We'll try to get uh, Council Collins back on in just a couple of seconds, uh, see if we can reestablish contact. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the the budget $62 million pandemic deficit that was forecast, and, and Council Collins is absolutely right. Uh, you know, the federal and provincial uh, assistance programs that were in place for a number of different communities uh, certainly have been effective on this, but uh, it wasn't going to cover everything. I mean, they, they knew that coming up front. I think we've got uh, Council Collins back. Are you with us, Chad? Yep. Sorry, Bill. Looks like I cut out there on my cell phone. Oh, it, it happens. Everybody's working remotely these days. It's going to happen. And yeah. then I know you were just lauding the, the staff, the city staff, uh, for doing the head to be done. But uh, to your credit, council had to make some tough decisions here, too, uh, about closing some facilities, uh, some temporary layoffs, and, and not no not doing any new hires. I mean, you, you've really got to go through every line in the budget when you're looking for those sorts of efficiencies in a, in a drastic time like this. Yeah, and I think in addition to thanking the Prime Minister and the Premier, our, our senior leadership team has done some tremendous work in terms of um, looking for ways and means in which to limit the damage to the city's budget. And they've essentially done that over over the last several months. It's been a very challenging year. It meant, as you just mentioned, not hiring and filling new positions. We're living this year with far less students than we've ever operated with before, and that means some of the services that we provide on the street have um, either been delayed or or, or we're not addressing them and, you know, whether it's less landscaping and, and less um, flowers in the boulevards and things like that, um, you know, we've had to make some sacrifices in terms of ensuring that the deficit is um, is tackled. And so we're it's been a joint effort between the provincial and federal governments who've done tremendous work in terms of being there for us and our senior leadership team with obviously council support. And when you do close facilities, we've talked about this with a number of mayors in the area over the last little while, of course you're losing revenue because, you know, they're not using the facilities, they're not using user fees, and that's money that you were expecting to get that you didn't, and that's problematic. There's also the concern about property taxes, and part of the update, as I see it yesterday, that you got from Mr. Zagarek is that I guess most people were paying their property taxes. I know there are some people that have been delinquent on rents and other things like this, but it's not as if you're rife with money right now but that was a, that was a major concern that a lot of people may not be able to do that but uh, it looks like things are going to be relatively okay 
It, it yeah, in that regard, at least for now, knock on wood, you know, yeah. we we did waive the fees, penalties, and interest for a period of time during the year, and we we noted that there was, I think, twenty percent for the tax payment that was due during the summer months. Twenty percent of Hamiltonians, whether they be businesses or residents, did not make a tax payment. It, it was a deferral essentially, but it looks like those numbers are are, are climbing back to where they should be. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think there's just some big question marks, Bill, in terms of what 2021 holds in store for us. We still see HSR ridership and revenues are down. We're at the 60% level of where they'd normally be. You know that during an, a, an economic downturn, um, even for, you know, those that wouldn't even be considered a recession, we see massive increases on the social housing wait list. And so we know that there are some pressures coming with social services and then, of course, what happens with recreation? A lot of our facilities are still closed. We don't see organized sports coming back anytime soon. So there's a lot of questions in terms of what happens there. And so from transit to recreation, you know, to a number of other areas within the organization, there's just some big question marks in terms of what 2021 holds in store for us. And it'll be a, very, a, a big challenge for, I think, our staff and council to determine what the 2021 budget should look like in that regard. Well, exactly. And maybe the biggest nut that you need to crack here is, uh, will there be any federal and provincial assistance this time around? Uh, because when I know when they gave you those checks last time, and it didn't cover everything. I mean, you guys still had a lot, an awful lot of work to do, and you apparently have done that. Uh, but there was no guarantee, and they told you that up front, that, look, this is 2020. I, we don't know what's going to happen. And now that we're seeing what looks like it's a second wave right now, I can understand that uh, that everybody on council is pretty nervous right now. Yeah, I think we're very fortunate to get the resources we have this year from the the province and the feds. And I think through yesterday's report and the presentation, it was deemed historic. And it really is in terms of the amount of resources that we receive for those. Next year is a different story. I mean, the question is, how long can the province and the federal government help everyone? I mean, they've been there for people who've been laid off. They've been there for people who can't find um, employment. They've They've been there for businesses. They've been there for municipalities. And I just don't know how long their budgets can sustain the social safety net, financial social safety net that they provided, as well as the supports for businesses as well. So that that's a big question. And of course, again, the city will have its own issues to deal with as more people are working from home. We see empty city parking lots and the, the, the um, revenues attached to those. Obviously, transit revenues are down in a record way. So our organization's been hit. And, and of course, there's all the the new um, public health, um, you know, requirements that we're provide we're required to provide for not just our employees, but for the public who are using our facilities in terms of the, um, you know, the protective equipment and social distancing requirements and those types of things. So, lots of questions for 2021. I think as you started the program, uh, this piece here today, Bill, you, you emphasized that at least for 2020. You know, we, we're we're pretty much out out of the um, out of the woods on that one, and and we're, it looks good going into 2021 as it relates to a year-end variance that is almost break-even. But 2021 is certainly a different question. Well, exactly. So, I mean, you guys had about five minutes to enjoy the good news yesterday, and then uh, now you're right back into it. Uh, good <laughs> luck great. with it, Chad. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins from Hamilton City Council. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.